This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we are going to talk about vaccine development and clinical trials regarding vaccines, especially in the COVID-19 crisis. We know what's going on in the world. I just checked today, we had 5.2 million cases of COVID with over 335,000 deaths. In US alone, we have 1.6 million cases and over 96,000 deaths. How are we dealing with it? We are dealing from all over with all kinds of techniques. We are all aware of the social distancing, but with the 20% of patients who are not fortunate enough to be asymptomatic, they get admitted in the hospital and 5% in ICU. How are they being treated? Antiviral therapy with remdesivir and triple therapies and many other therapies that you've heard of. The bridge therapy with convalescent plasma has come and we have also identified new symptoms. So overall, everybody's agreeing that uh, COVID is, is creating chaos. Today we are joined for this podcast by Dr. Gregory Poland. Greg is the director of the Mayo Vaccine Research Group. He's the editor-in-chief of the journal Vaccine, and he's also the Mary Lowell Leary Emeritus Professor of Medicine. As far as I know, there was nobody I know in Mayo Clinic who understands vaccine development, has fought about developing vaccines, has been in this field longer than Greg. Thank you for joining us, Greg. Oh, of course, Amit, and good to work with you. You've been a long-standing and valued colleague. Greg, I feel very fortunate today that I have you uh, to speak to our audience about what's going on. I mean, you have been in the trenches developing vaccines all your life. You've been through the SARS, the Ebola, and your lab has been churning out vaccines and immersed in vaccines. Before I get into the nitty-gritty of the SARS-CoV-2, subunits and what's going on. All the different vaccines that have made it to the market, what kind of general principles are involved in the, in the development of these vaccines? What are the characteristics that they should have? That's a great question because it bears so strongly on what's happening now and how people think about it. And an easy way to remember it is really uh, three things two that are cru crucial. One is that the vaccine has to be efficacious. And that can vary based on, for example, the malaria vaccine might be 30% efficacious and yet offers value. The second is safety. Remember that we're giving these vaccines to health, generally healthy people to prevent the possibility of future infections. So necessarily, the safety bar should be set very high. And then the third and distant factor is sort of feasibility factors. Can we manufacture it? Does it need a cold chain? Is it one or two doses, et cetera? So an ideal vaccine would be maybe one dose might produce enough antibodies, shouldn't have side effects as we have seen some of the vaccines. And as you said, doesn't need a cold chain. And so it could be valid in tropics. And of course, one thing which you have talked about is Hey, we've got 6 billion population in the world. And if, if you have to create a vaccine for 6 billion people, that's an enormous responsibility. 
Yeah, you said it well. What particularly in the in the SARS-CoV-2 virus, what are the proteins which are amenable for vaccine development? So what, what I, as a researcher, what are you looking at? Yeah, so there, there are four structural proteins and then a variety of so-called non-structural proteins. And the, the one everybody's heard about is this sort of spike projection off the virus called the spike protein or S protein. That's really, that really seems to be the target of the majority of neutralizing antibodies. But there are also uh, uh, nucleoprotein, matrix, and envelope uh, proteins that we happen to think are also very important for a holistic uh, development of immunity against a virus like this. Remember, and an important factor here is this is an RNA virus. And RNA viruses are marked by the capacity for mutations and recombination events. And one concern about so-called S-only or spike-only vaccines, I just published an editorial last week about this, is the idea that there could be the, uh, enough mutational pressure that you have escape mutants that then become dominant or uh, lessen the value of a vaccine that was produced, say, this year against the virus as it presents this coming fall or winter. So I've heard a lot about the neutralizing antibody, which you're mentioning about. What is a neutralizing antibody? So the idea behind a neutralizing antibody is that this, this binds to an important part of the virus, and it binds with high affinity and avidity and neutralizes the virus. The problem, and, you, and you've asked really a very insightful and critical question, Ahmed, is that when you develop sub-neutralizing or just binding antibodies that don't neutralize the virus, you actually run the risk of vaccine-associated or antibody-enhanced disease in the people who get the vaccine. We saw that with inactivated RSV and activated measles and just a year and a half, two years ago with uh, the new dengue vaccine. So, so this is a, a really important and critical aspect of vaccine safety, which I suspect we'll talk more about in a bit. And so just because you touched on it, can you elaborate on, I've read about some of the complications being, is it going to be the same disease if the virus is not neutralized completely, or is it new? I've heard about lung complications in some of these vaccines. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, with the SARS-CoV-1 uh, back in 2003-2004, none of those vaccines progressed past phase one. Uh, the primary reason being that the virus disappeared. And the second one is that in a number of those candidate vaccines, there was the development, just as you're suggesting, of pulmonary pathology in those animals, and it was two animal models, mice and ferrets, that got the vaccine, then had a viral challenge, and developed uh, immunopathology in, in the lungs and a hepatitis-like picture. So it really is important that we get this right. And uh, uh, one of the cautions that I have is there's immense public and political pressure for a vaccine, which as a vaccinologist, I, I get that. But at the same time, if there's a side effect discovered because we have rushed the vaccine, have we really done uh, the public a favor? And uh, you, know, you and I took a, an oath first, first 
do no harm. Uh, and so my interest is not only in developing vaccines, but ensuring that they're as safe as possible. That's right. Right now, we only know about this 5.2 million cases and the numbers going up. These are only the cases which are coming up. A lot of them are 80% are asymptomatic. Uh, only 20% are symptomatic. A lot of people are not even getting tested. Now you take the whole 6 billion population and give them vaccines. Uh, and if you don't do it right, the math of vaccine-related problems will go to millions. Might well, even exceed know, the number of cases we have right now. Yeah, I mean, we, we already live in a, in a culture where there is vaccine hesitancy and a lot of skepticism about vaccines. If we don't do this right, we'll set back public acceptance of vaccines by decades. Getting it right when you mentioned, one is the neutralizing antibody that you mentioned. But when I hear experts like you and others talk, you also talk about this T cell activation in vaccine development. Why is that important? Yeah, it's, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is that you need a certain amount of T helper cell activation. That's part of the development of adaptive and cellular immunity. So we want to develop long-lived cellular immunity. So you know, if, uh, if I get the vaccine uh, tomorrow and two years from now I'm exposed to this virus, I want to have trained my immune system, so to speak, to recognize and then start producing antibody against this virus or part of the virus that it's seen before. The, the other aspect of it, and you touched on it when you mentioned the pulmonary pathology, is that you want to have a, what's called a Th1, what I've talked about before, before was Th2, you want to have a Th1 uh, bias toward the immune response, if you will, because that's, those are the cells responsible for viral clearance of infected cells. And that's really an important feature of these infections. So if you don't pay attention to it, we only worry about the neutralizing antibody and the B cells. As I'm understanding from you, the protection might be just for a year or shorter or a year or two. But if you do for a T cell, it could go on for five or six years. Or, or hopefully longer. So that's hopefully one part is durability. And the other part is when we're, when we're Th2 biased, when we're biased toward antibody only, that's when you start running the risk of vaccine-associated enhanced disease. So we really do want to get that right. I'll come back to that again as to why some vaccines can be given once in your lifetime, like the Zostavax, which we know of, and others like flu shots you have to get every year, and where does SARS COVID-2 fit in, but uh, I will, I'll come to that. But coming to the thing about, as you just mentioned, there was a lot of rush from people, politics. I can understand businesses are closed. Everybody wants to get on with their lives. I don't want to be taking medicines. I don't want to be taking plasma if I can avoid, but these, these are being given right now because you're not having a vaccine. But from start to finish, can you explain why does it take so long to make a vaccine? And in your experience, how long does it take to develop a vaccine? You, you've been involved in so many of them. Yeah, um, another good question. Uh, typically in the US, we have a regulatory pathway that I'll describe in a moment, moment. but it is designed to be uh, reflective, evidence-based, peer-reviewed, so that no corners are cut. 
it, it, is, it is a deliberately long process in order to ensure safety and, and good efficacy. That time interval in the U.S. is generally seven to 20 years. So, for example, the uh, chicken pox vaccine that our kids got, that took almost 20 years to develop. Costs about $1 billion U.S. to license a, a vaccine and do all the studies. The reason for that is this. We start, for example, in my lab, we're working on a COVID-19 vaccine. We start with the preclinical work. So what is the platform we're going to use? What antigens should we include? Then we're going to study it in small animal models. At that point, we present our data to the FDA and they allow a phase one clinical trial. Phase one is first in man trials, usually involves 10 to 60 people, somewhere around there, tens, not hundreds or thousands. And the idea there is really uh, uh, searching for the right dose, the right method of administration and safety. If those go well, then you're allowed to go to phase two. Phase two has hundreds of subjects. And again, you're evaluating dose, you're evaluating safety. If that goes well, you enter into the so-called valley of death. It's called that because only about 6% or so of vaccine candidates are actually gonna make it through phase three clinical trials. These now involve tens of thousands of people because you're really wanting to know about efficacy and you're wanting to know about safety. At that point, uh, and I've served on this FDA committee, all this data comes to an expert committee. It's reviewed and a vote taken on whether it should be uh, licensed in the US. Nowadays, even if that vote is positive, the FDA insists on phase four studies where hundreds of thousands to millions of people have now gotten the vaccine through routine clinical uh, use, but we nonetheless passively gather data looking for any other uh, safety signals. And the, and the reason we do that, and I've calculated out the numbers here, and let me just uh, read some of them. If you want to know about a significant side effect that occurs one in 5,000 times, you have to study 19,200 people, okay? So far, none of the vaccine trials that we're hearing about have involved that number of people. If you wanna know about a significant side effect that occurs one in 10,000, you're, you're talking about studying just under 40,000 people, and one in 100,000, which we'll essentially uh, only know about in phase four studies, you're studying 385,000 people. So it gives you a sense of why does it take so long? Why does it cost so much? And it really revolves around safety. Given the time and given what we have known, is the FDA or the vaccine development going to kind of speed up the process of stage one, phase one and phase two? Uh, I understand several of these studies are already in phase two, which is very, uh, surprising given the length of time it took in the past. Yeah, um, well, you're, you're right. And in my opinion, um, we, are, we, we are rushing. One understands that it's uh, been called the fierce urgency of now. <laughs> and, and we all get that as, as clinicians and, and as uh, scientists. But at the same time, I think the appropriate pathway is preclinical, small animals, and then non-human primate studies. 
then phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. Now, now you can adapt those trials, and there are ways in which you can safely speed those up, but never, in my mind, never at the cost of safety. We must ensure that uh, other physicians, scientists, and the public trust the process, and that trust is born of knowing that we're putting safety ahead of everything else. And uh, that's where my concern uh, re revolves, is that we're doing simultaneous phase one, two, or simultaneous phase two, three studies involving 10,000, not 20,000 or 50,000. Um, and, and I have some concerns about that. One of the ways in which um, one could shorten or at least decide whether a uh, vaccine candidate should go forward that's being talked about is human uh, challenge studies. The idea behind here, and we do it with some uh, other uh, uh, pathogens, is we would give somebody an experimental vaccine, remove them to a facility, and then deliberately infect them with the virus. At, at this point, I personally don't think that's ethical. Uh, I think a lot has to be worked out about that, primarily because we don't have approved rescue therapy if one of those volunteers were to, to get in trouble. So uh, for me, uh, as, a, as a physician, as a scientist, as a Mayo Clinic clinician, uh, the safety of our patients must always come first. Just listening to your numbers, if you have an adverse effect, in one in 100,000 and you need 385,000 patients or people to study it. And, and if that's positive, then billions of people we have, it, it could mount very soon to millions of uh, adverse effects. So that could be- Well, that's, uh, that's right. Now, yeah, now the one in 100,000, we, we never really discover those until phase four studies. And, and that's understandable from a logistic and feasibility issue but it's the one in 10,000 and under that I'm concerned we, we don't see when we do shortcut trials with small numbers of subjects. We have this magical thing, we come up with a vaccine, knowing the characteristics, knowing the mutations, which are going to happen at the spike protein level and others. Is it, does it look like it's going to be one and done, that one vaccine and it'll take care of lifelong immunity? Or is it going to be something which we have to take like the flu shot or combine with the flu shot during the fall season and get it once a year for the rest of our lives? Yeah, and you know, the, the short, easy answer is nobody knows yet. <laughs> uh, that, that remains to be discovered. But to your first question, um, I don't think it's going to be one and done. I think we're going to need different types of vaccines. Uh, and for this reason, um, right now, the world's manufacturing capacity, if we switched everything to just produce this vaccine, particularly if we needed two doses, we, we can't do it. So we're going to need different types of vaccines. We're going to need different types of vaccines because we're immunizing different, uh, if you will, categories of people, immuno-immature children, immunosenescent adults, immunocompromised people, pregnant women. Um, that is rarely amenable to a single vaccine platform. Uh, I, I would put forward as an example uh, influenza, where we have some seven different types of influenza vaccine. I like that. I pushed the companies to develop vaccines like that. 
because I think we want to be as uh, personalized in our prescription of a vaccine as we are with drugs. Choose the right vaccine for the right person at the right time. And so I think uh, almost assuredly, we're going to need to have several different uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccines. How did the Salk develop the, the initial vaccine and before that, Jenner with the cowpox? I mean, there weren't so many people around and still they got a vaccine going in a short time where there's a lot of adverse effect that they didn't notice. Yeah. Uh, trial and error. Uh, and they've actually now become immortal because of the vaccines that they have developed. Yeah. They just yeah. got lucky with the virus. Yeah, you know, it is interesting to look back at uh, Jenner and even before Jenner. Jenner is uh, noted because he was the first to publish, which is a lesson for all of us academics. But <laughs> he wasn't the first to, to use it. Uh, it had been used actually probably centuries uh, before in China, India, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but he published first. And, and your point is a good one. Even the advanced uh, second or third generation uh, smallpox vaccines that we have now still suffer from the same side effects of being a live attenuated uh, vaccine. Jonathan Edwards in the early colonial time of this country when he was president um, of Yale uh, got smallpox vaccine and a month later died from complications of it. So, uh, you know, Th that, of course, was done back in the days before they really understood uh, the science. Now, you take something like polio vaccine that you mentioned with Salk, and it's, it's very interesting. So Salk uh, uh, developed an inactivated viral vaccine and Sabin an oral vaccine. And in the testing of the Salk vaccine, there's the so-called Cutter incident. That was the name of the company making it. And something went wrong in the process. This is in the 1950s. And the virus was not inactivated and yet was administered as an inactivated vaccine. And children developed polio as a result of that. I don't think that would happen today, obviously, because we do lot release testing, et cetera. But it points to the fact that in the field of vaccinology, I've been in this field over 35 years, I can tell you that there are always surprises. Uh, we've had influenza vaccines since the 1940s. We're still doing testing on next generation vaccines to improve them. So, so we will never be done. We can never really make them good enough. We have to keep improving them like all of medicine. But always before us has to be an exceptionally high bar for safety. Now you might you might vary that bar based on um, uh, conditions. For example, let's say that SARS-CoV-2 was killing 30%, like Ebola, 30% of the people it infected. You might accept a vaccine that had more side effects that were not you know, lethal or inducing any permanent damage. Uh, you, might, you might accept a vaccine that had lower efficacy and higher reactogenicity because the, the, the risk benefit would still be favorable. That's not the case in, in the current environment with this. It needs to be very, very safe. I need to go back and ask you one additional point which I hear vaccinologists and experts talk about is mucosal immunity mm. with vaccines. And what is mucosal immunity and why is it important? And do you see that play a role in, in the development of the current vaccine that we are talking about? Yeah, that's one of those 
uh, unknowns I was referring to where uh, I'm sure we will pay more attention to that in a second generation COVID-19 vaccine. There were some early studies looking at intranasal administration of a vaccine. <clears throat> you could demonstrate uh, the development of mucosal immunity, but insufficient sterilizing immunity to protect against uh, disease. So uh, mucosal immunity is important for respiratory pathogens because they are being introduced and entered through the nose and mouth, but it is not more important than more systemic or humoral immunity. Um, so, so, you know, both have to be considered. So a common way of remembering some of these vaccines, live versus attenuated is, you know, if somebody is immunocompetent comp competent and in ra rather good sense, they can tolerate a live vaccine really good. And if you are immunocompromised like transplant or the immunosenescent and, and the younger children, um, they said, you know, give them a kill vaccine and that's safer. What do you think, are we going to approach this two-tire system in um, the COVID-2 case? You know, uh, Amit, you're nearly there as a vaccinologist. I'm going to get you into vaccines yet. <laughs> you've, you've articulated it very well. Um, we basically sort of have four uh, categories you can think of, of of vaccines. Actually, five if you think of something like tetanus, which is a toxoid. But let me leave that one off for now. In terms of uh, respiratory viruses, we have um, whole virus vaccines that you mentioned. Those can be attenuated but live or inactivated. We have recombinant protein vaccines. We have um, uh, vaccines that are delivered with replicating or non-replicating viral vectors, and that's, uh, that's actually one of the lead vaccines right now. And then we have uh, nucleic acid-based vaccines, whether mRNA or DNA vaccine. And then finally, our, our own approach at, at Mayo, which is a peptide-based vaccine, so that you can make them cheaply, store them indefinitely, no cold chain, and no contraindications or allergic reactions. So uh, we, we, of course, uh, think that our platform is gonna turn out to be a winner, but we'll see. This really leads, leads out to the segue of the kinds of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines which have been studied. And we have this, recently the press came out about the Moderna mRNA, which you mentioned. Can you tell uh, something about what this vaccine is about? Yeah, so the Moderna vaccine is an mRNA vaccine uh, in a lipid nanoparticle. So the idea is that you inject this, and then the mRNA uh, with this lipid particle is taken up into cells, and then the mRNA, which is a, uh, a genetic code for the S protein, starts reproducing within the cell. So the idea is to force our own human cells to make S protein, so that we develop um, uh, immunity against the virus. And uh, you're right, that is now in phase two clinical trials. Um, they did a press release a day ago, I think it was. Oddly enough, and, and I don't particularly like the idea of presenting science through press releases, I like publications that are peer reviewed, but uh, oddly enough, uh, though they had studied more patients, they only uh, presented results on a fraction uh, of the patients. But in that fraction, they all developed uh, nice high levels of immunity. And in a monkey study that was done preceding it, 
demonstrated that after one dose, they could protect those monkeys against severe disease. So I, I would call it a promising candidate. We have never licensed an mRNA-based vaccine before, and uh, a lot of safety work, I think, to be done yet. What about the Oxford University vaccine that they've been working on and it's impressed too? Yeah, that's, a, that's another one of these um, viral vectored vaccine. In this case, it's a chimpanzee uh, adenovirus that has uh, been modified so that it does not uh, go through many cycles of replication, which of course would be a problem. But in, within the, the uh, uh, virus, they've inserted the genetic code for the S protein, the full length of the S protein. So again, that virus, if you will, quote unquote, infects us when it's administered. And then the genetic code for the S protein of, of SARS-CoV-2 virus starts replicating, making S protein. We make antibodies against that and then immunity if our body should see the actual live virus. And I've also heard about the Inovio Pharma, but that has a very unique, different way of inserting the vaccine, which is not typical and could be problematic when you're using it for mass production and mass administration. Yeah, I know. You, you, you nailed it again. Um, this is a DNA-based vaccine. Again, uh, that has never been licensed before. DNA vaccines contain at least the theoretical risk of that DNA integrating into the host genome, into our own um, DNA. And that's, that's of major concern if anything like that were to be seen. It hasn't been, but were it to be seen, that, that would be a concern. The other issue with that, Ahmed, is that you're not only having to inject the vaccine, but then you're having to do something like electroporation so that the uh, DNA can actually get into the cell. So it makes it an expensive, bulky platform that I think would be hard to use in a mass vaccination setting and likely pretty expensive. And then the Mayo peptide-based vaccine, which you are involved in, and you did mention some of the characteristics of why a peptide vaccine could be beneficial. Can you take us through the steps on what do you do and what kind of peptides are you considering for the SARS-CoV-2? Case. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that for the question. So what we have done is we've spent <clears throat> about 15 years developing the science behind this. So we use very elegant, very sensitive mass spectrometry. We take human cells, grow them in a petri dish, and then infect those cells with the virus. Then what we do is using mass spectrometry, we're literally pulling off the cell, all the protein pieces, so it's called processing, all the pieces of the virus that the body processes or breaks that virus down into, and then we pick off those individual little peptides. So we're actually seeing what our immune cells see. They don't see the virus, they see pieces of proteins of the virus. And we're actually isolating those pieces. So it's a, it's a very natural uh, uh, process. And then what we do is we uh, do further in vitro uh, studies where we take humans who have been previously infected with the virus, expose their white blood cells to these peptides in order to determine which ones do they react to. In other words, are they 
biologically and immunologically relevant peptides. Then we take those peptides, package them with a lipid nanoparticle or with an adjuvant, and then uh, inject them into animals. So we've done that with measles. We've done that with influenza. Uh, most recently, uh, Rick Kennedy in my lab has done it with smallpox uh, virus, actually vaccinia virus, and demonstrated that we completely protected these small animals against viral challenge. So uh, the advantage of it is you can make peptides extremely cheaply. Um, you don't have to have uh, cold storage for them. You can store them indefinitely. Um, and we're hoping we can include uh, peptides from a variety of the structural proteins we talked about earlier so that the body is trained to think it's seen the whole virus and would react appropriately if somebody ever were infected. As you're describing the, how you created the peptide-based vaccine for the other uh, viruses, it, it comes to mind, are these selections of the different, whether it's mRNA, whether it's DNA, whether it's peptide, based on the regional expertise of these labs who are working on the viruses, we're working on the same virus and developing, planning to develop a vaccine, or is the race towards nobody can scale to six billion vaccine if it's proved to be effective and has all the characteristics that local pockets develop their vaccine, which is equally effective. And then we'll probably have a head-to-head -head trial on which of the vaccine produces more antibody. Looks like there's so many unexplained questions at the present moment and answers too will require, but right now the world and the politician and everybody's screaming at you saying, we don't care what you're doing, peptide, mRNA, DNA, just give it a name of vaccine and throw it us, at us. And you are cautioning us yeah. that that race can be, or that, that can be a very risky proposition, can delay our vaccine development for years. So I like the, I like the caution, like to have your view about this whole concept about the race towards this is yeah. like going to the moon. It's a, yeah, Ahmed, I think you'll, you'll appreciate the name of the editorial I published in Vaccine last week. It was called The Tortoise and the Hare, a cautionary note on SARS-CoV-2 vaccine development. It's from that old Greek uh, fable saying that the race is not always to the swift. It's to the, it's to the wise. And the whole point was to point out that we can, we can move vaccine development forward and we can be wise at the same time. I, I think we have all seen doing science by public media is a very poor way to do it. Doing science by you know, economics or politics or pol uh, uh, public pressure, it's all understandable, but as professionals, uh, our job, and as physicians and clinicians, our job is to evaluate those and figure out what, is, what offers the best efficacy and the highest standard of safety. As we mentioned and we talked about, I think several vaccines are likely to fulfill uh, that criteria. And you, you asked about, well, why, why these different platforms? It does have to do with the expertise and the interest of the individual group or, or uh, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers' uh, expertise with a, with a certain uh, uh, technique, for example. But it also recognizes, I think, that we're going to need more than one type 
of uh, vaccine. And, and so I applaud that there are a lot of vaccines in development. Some of them are, most of them are never going to amount to anything. Over 110 vaccine development efforts have been announced. Most of those, the vast majority are press releases. They won't go anywhere. They're me too kind of ideas. Um, I think uh, the, the NIH uh, here in the U.S. has done us a great service by putting together uh, sort of a partnership, if you will, called ACTIVE. And the idea there, and I really want to endorse this, is to say rather than all these competing interests, let's put together master protocols so everything is studied the same way, have the same data monitoring and safety board overlook all of this, use a standardized lab, an independent board of statisticians, so that we really do get the best science and the best quality of these uh, clinical studies in order to make wise decisions. Now, I like your caution because just like you, I am a general practitioner. And so I have to spend so much time just explaining the routine vaccines, mm. which work. Yeah. Uh, somehow this vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2 has been hyped up so much that I'm already getting uh, patients asking me about when will the vaccine be ready. Yes. I don't want to be in a situation where I am dealing with the adverse effect and explaining to the patients how we rush uh, our judgments and our, our scientific community did not apply all the rigorous principles which you teach in the graduate school and we have learned from so many experts what to do because you're right, we shouldn't do any harm. So I, I completely agree with you uh, that it is still beneficial to have all those guidelines, social distancing, hand washing, putting the mask, 80% are asymptomatic, the 20% we are improving on what to do and then we are, the community is trying to find out ways of reopening the businesses yeah. uh, by caution, but rushing to a vaccine thinking, well, that's the way to do the things and not doing it right is going to be a whole huge crisis, as you just pointed out. Well, in, in fact, uh, let me give you an example that reinforces what you were talking about in the 2009 influenza pandemic. Now, we've been making influenza vaccines since the 1940s. Every year, we take out the old strain in the vaccine, put in the new. This was no different in 2009. The new pandemic strain was put into the vaccine, inactivated, of course, subunit. And yet, physicians, nurses wouldn't, and the public wouldn't take the vaccine because over that six-month time period, they said it was rushed and we didn't know about safety. So we live in a vaccine-skeptical society. And even with a safe vaccine like influenza, we had uh, maybe only 50% uh, uptake. So we, we really do need to get this right, as you're, as you're pointing out, and be able to legitimately say, Here's the safety profile of this vaccine. And uh, I'm not going to recommend it to patients until I take it first. Well, I'm so glad that uh, very thoughtful and uh, physicians like you, physician scientists who spend their entire career, lifetime, 35 years mm -hmm. of, of the most glorious service that I know of, uh, that you have, you have served all of us at Mayo Clinic and the, and the field Thank of you. vaccinology. So as long as your name is there, as long as there are individuals whom you trust are doing this vaccine, as long as you're writing 
editorials in your vaccine group telling us what to do. I think all of us in the general practice, the government and the people are going to be satisfied with that. Till then, we'll have to continue doing what we are doing. In fact, the, the story goes that the, the guy released a genie from the bottle. And the, when the genie was leaving the bottle and disappearing, the guy says, hey, aren't you going to grant me a favor, man? I, I released you from the bottle. I'm, I'm told you can grant me some favors. The genie said, are you crazy? If I could grant you a favor, couldn't I get out of the bottle myself? <laughs> so, what I am saying is uh, doing it right and doing it well. There's so many great minds working on it. Uh, and thank you very much, Greg, for taking the time to talk with us. Of You're course. Forward. I'm sure this is an evolving field. And if I were to interview in six months from now, there'll be a lot more that we would have learned from you would have learned and you would have, you, you'd be able to tell us. I, I, I think we'll probably repeat this, uh, this uh, recording uh, this fall when we know a lot more. That's right. Well, thank you, Greg. So we just heard Dr. Gregory Poland, Director of Mayo Vaccine Research Group, Editor-in-Chief of Vaccine and Professor at the Mayo Clinic Rochester, talk about the vaccine development in COVID-19 crisis and also talk about some of the clinical trials. We'll continue to bring you updates on this situation as events unfold. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talk podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and I'll see you back next week.